You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello, and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the aviation historian Roland White, whose new book, Harrier 809, Britain's legendary jump jet and the untold story of the Falklands War, comes out in October. I'm also very pleased to be joined by one of the men without whom this book and the Falklands War would not have been possible, Commander Tim Gedge, who was the CO of 809 Naval Air Squadron, one of the three squadrons of Harriers dispatched to the Falklands in the early 80s. Welcome both. Thanks, Sam. Lovely to be joining you. And likewise from me. Now, Roland, if I may start just by asking you, how did the sort of book begin to come together? The Falklands is a subject that's been gone over quite a lot by historians in the last sort of 30 years. What was it that convinced you there was a new story to be told here and what what got you excited about it? Well, I mean, the Falklands War first captured my imagination as um, an 11-year-old boy, as it did for so many of my generation. And I knew through that interest that there'd been two very, very good accounts of the Sea Harriers War in the Falklands written in the form of Sharky Ward's Sea Harrier over the Falklands and Dave Morgan's Hostile Skies, both of which are about the two different squadrons, frontline squadrons that uh, went down with the carriers initially. But I was also aware that alongside that, there was a, in some ways, a more unusual, more intriguing story of uh, 809 Squadron, a third frontline squadron that was commissioned after the invasion, hastily pulled together using men and machines from all over the country, indeed all over the world, some of whom uh, were then deployed less than three weeks later um, with fewer than 10 hours time in the cockpit of a Sea Harrier. So it had a sort of dirty dozen feel to it. We're going to pull this team together and send them on a special mission. And indeed, one of uh, the veterans that I spoke to who helped train 809, reflecting on that, said, you know, the only only person we didn't have was anybody out of jail. Now, sort of much of the first part of the book describes that kind of pulling it together aspect. And it's kind of remarkable, you know, to those of us who tend to think, or imagine at least, that, you know, Army and Navy and military logistics are these sort of seamless things where you know exactly where all your planes are and they're all ready to go and they're all stored here. But you're sort of running around, where are the pilots? Oh, half of them are in America, half of them are here, half of them, you know. I mean, Tim, you were doing that pulling together. You know, can you talk us through a bit the beginning of, of this story, you know, when you first knew, you know, as it were, that the balloon had gone up? Yeah, it, it was a very uh, extraordinary time. I had uh, had the privilege of um, bringing the first frontline Sea Harrier squadron into service at the beginning of 1980. I'd had command of that for a couple of years and had only just, in the early part of 82, handed over command of 800 squadron, as it was, when the Argentines invaded, I was sort of kicking my heels on the Admiral's staff in Portsmouth, very much in a desk job, sort of organising um, uh, the people to go south. And and actually, I have to say that I was, uh, put it mildly, upset that um, all my team were going to go off and fight a war, and I was the one person who was going to be left behind. So uh, I was very, very pleased, as the, the day that the ship sailed, that the Admiral rang me up and said... Uh, 
would I come back to Yeovilton and form a new squadron with the sort of remnants and bring it together and go south. So that was um, a real challenge in a sense, but I had an awful lot to uh, build it from. I mean, I brought uh, 800 Squadron into service. It, it, that was a new squadron forming. It wasn't, as it were, taking over a squadron. So uh, I'd done all the sort of preparation. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, the problem was that we only had uh, 21 days to uh, do it in. And so thinking of, um, I went straight back to Yeovilton and got stuck in. And I've said uh, several times that the one of the most difficult things was thinking what it was that we wanted. I mean, the, the whole sort of um, supply organization, the whole of the country was actually producing exactly what it was we wanted. The, the difficult thing, in a sense, was um, thinking outside the box and thinking what it was that we did want. And uh, I saw that very much as my, uh, as my job at Yeovilton. There's remarkable stuff in here about how, for instance, a sort of eight or nine month training course, you know, you were thinking of ways of kind of sandwiching it into three weeks. And, you know, we have descriptions of people who've never landed a sea harrier at sea. You know, the first time they actually do it is in theatre. I mean, is, is that the sort of thing that could still be done today? Well, I, I think, it, yes, it is. I mean, given that somebody can fly the aeroplane and can uh, take it off and, uh, <laughs> and land it um, and fight it, then landing on a ship is, uh, with a short takeoff vertical landing, a stovall aircraft, is not actually colossally difficult. Uh, if you can do it on a on a, 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 a runway, a shore, do a vertical landing. If you, if particularly if you can land on a pad, a shore, then um, landing on the deck of a carrier is 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 not hugely difficult. Do, doing it at night is slightly different matter. But uh, and if the deck is moving a lot, it uh, gets more difficult. But uh, the the basic operation is relatively simple. Now, if you look to the sort of the new generation of um, the F-35B, which we've got at sea, yes, I mean, if people can land that ashore, they would be able to land it uh, on the ship. And yet, Tim, I, I, I love the story that you shared with me of uh, how you were trying to prepare your your squadron to land on Atlantic Conveyor that had an unusual feature in this mast that it had right next to the landing pad. And you, you hired a, a crane, I think, to and, and dragged this poor driver to Yeovilton to, uh, to pretend to be Atlantic Conveyor. That was, um, yes. And uh, fortunately, when I was on board Atlantic Conveyor and we were um, busy sort of removing the uh, tie-down points for the uh, containers and all sorts of other things on the deck to actually uh, uh, take the aircraft, there was a uh, strong uh, body of... Uh, the uh, engineers and the, the dockyard people there who wanted to take away the foremast, the forward mast in, in Atlantic Conveyor, uh, because they thought it would get in the way of people landing. Fortunately, I was there and I said, no, no, for goodness sake, you've got to leave that because that's the only reference point we're going to have. And if you think about sort of landing on a pad ashore, what you do, you, because you can't see below you in a, in, a, in a sea harrier when you're landing, you look out to the side and it, 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 normally a couple of uh, large poles 
poles are put out ahead of the aircraft and, and out at the side of the aircraft and you line these up one with the other and, and, uh, and then come down keeping them in line. But of course you can't do that at sea. I mean everything is, you know, if you, of course you can't because in the middle of the ocean. So it seemed to me that the only way we were going to actually position ourselves was by uh, formating, as it were, at the top of the uh, mast and then uh, coming down. The, the fact that the mast was pointing 10 degrees off the vertical seemed to me not to be a problem. But the only way to try it, it seemed, occurred to me as I was driving back to Yeovilton was to uh, actually get a crane and, and incline the mast, which is exactly what we did. Not to, to frame the story a little in perspective, and maybe Roland, this would be one for you. You know, what was the sort of position of the Navy when the Falklands kicked off? You know, because it, it was just, I mean, as you say, somewhere early on, it seemed to be, you know, this was the perfect opportunity to demonstrate why we needed a Navy almost the only one you could have thought of. I mean, Tim will be able to uh, expand on this, I'm sure. But the impression I got from talking to people was that uh, the Navy uh, in early 1982, for all that it was looking forward to um, continuing to develop the capability of the Sea Harrier and the CVS ships, um, Invincible, Lustrous and Ark Royal, um, was also in the throes of its reaction to John Knott's proposed cuts to the fleet. And that included the um, the selling of, of HMS Invincible to the Australian Navy. So it, it was an organisation that was definitely feeling under the cosh, uh, kind of under threat, a little underappreciated. And when, uh, when uh, I, I'd spotted a, a quote from uh, Dennis Healy, one of the things he was well known for as Defence Secretary was uh, abandoning plans for a replacement for previous generation of aircraft carrier, Ark Royal, said when the Navy was making its case for a new generation of carriers, uh, the one scenario that nobody ever put in front of him, although there were plenty of imaginative scenarios, was an effort to uh, recapture the Falkland Islands after an invasion. But it just so happened that of all the scenarios that the Navy might have encountered that would demonstrate uh, the value of the aircraft carriers, demonstrate the value of being able to operate 8,000 miles from home at the end of a long supply line, Falkland Islands was almost perfectly designed to be able to do that, uh, while at the same time, to a very large extent, excluding the Royal Air Force from being able to contribute in the way that they might have been able to had it been closer to home. Now, we only had these two big carriers, Hermes and Invincible. And as you say, Invincible was about to be sold off. If the Argentinians had invaded the Falklands, say, a year later, would Invincible have been in Australia and the repossession of the Falklands have been impossible? Well, we'd have had a we'd have had a lustrous by then. So um, we would had we still had Hermes, who was eventually sold to India. Although actually, Argentina asked if she could buy um, Hermes in the sixties, and I think that there was even talk of selling uh, Hermes to Chile as well. But um, we, we lustrous was actually rushed into. Uh, to service very, very quickly after the invasion. And in fact, Tim took 809 south on Illustrious um, uh, in July uh, after the end of the war to go and provide air defence for the islands um, before the runway was extended. So, um, you know, a year later, uh, you know, yes, probably we'd have been in a, a, a position to fight a, a similar war. Okay, well, that's a, that's a sort of relief. Now, obviously, the star of the story is the Sea Harrier. And Tim, tell us a little about this aeroplane. What's it like to fly? 
Well, it's it's a, um, a typical Hawker airplane, so it's it's a it's a wonderful, lovely airplane to fly. It does everything that a pilot would want, and it has this astonishing ability to be able to uh, take off and uh, particularly to land vertically. So, um, in a sense, you've got an aircraft which is as nice an airplane to fly as a, as a hunter, for instance. It comes out of the same stable. But it has, as I've said, this astonishing ability to uh, uh, to land vertically, and if you look at the the way that the sort of uh, the the whole uh, concept of bringing it into service was um, thought up, it was done on a shoestring. It was if you, if you go back to the sort of defence decisions that were made, everything was based around the NATO areas. In other words, it was all north of the equator, and it was based based fundamentally around the the North Atlantic. So the idea that the the Royal Navy would have to go and do something in in sort of far flung uh, and away from uh, land based uh, aircraft was, uh, although a lot of us who were involved thought that we would um, be somewhat vulnerable, we were not allowed to really voice that because everything was um, costed on the uh, on the NATO. And of course, if you look at the ability, the, the Royal Air Force said that they would be able to provide fighter protection for the fleet wherever, and also that they would pr- particularly provide airborne early warning. And um, there were some misgivings about this, but the basis of the Harrier was to uh, see Harrier was to have something that could react very quickly if a sort of last ditch defense of the fleet was needed before the Royal Air Force land based fighters could uh, actually make it out there. So that was the sort of fundamental reasons for bringing the, the Sea Harrier into service. It really was not envisaged to be provide the sort of uh, air defense of the fleet that we used it for in the Falklands. And of course, the the one thing we particularly missed was the airborne early warning. And of course, uh, loss of HMS Sheffield and other ships down there was a, a direct result of, and Atlantic and Ver for that matter, was a direct result of not having the airborne early warning capability. And what were you facing in terms of the Argentinian Air Force. I know, Roland, you got some remarkable cooperation and help, judging by your acknowledgements and judging by the detail in the book, from Argentinian air defence and aviation historians who gave you a sense of what was going on on their side. Yes, I mean, the one thing which... um... And I, I must admit to um, standing on uh, the shoulders of previous generations of historians as well, who conducted extensive interviews with um, Argentine flyers after the war, um, some of which are now in the, the uh, National Archives. So I, I first of all realised that since the archives around the Falklands War had been declassified um, under the 30-year rule, nobody had really used them or drawn on the information in them to write about the air war in the Falklands. And so that was another reason for wanting to get stuck into to this story again. But the thing that came across incredibly powerfully was just how committed, professional, skillful, and actually reasonably well-equipped the Argentine Air Force and uh, Naval Air Arm were. The idea that we were sort of fighting some uh, third world country that wasn't in a position to sort of compete 
in a near peer war would be would have been entirely to misunderstand the situation certainly and Tim's uh, talked about NATO they had fewer opportunities to train against equivalent air arms but we shouldn't underestimate at all the size of the task that faced what initially were just 20 sea harriers and um, Tim's boss who was um, the admiral in charge of um, aircraft carriers and amphibious ships produced a report as Invincible and Hermes were sailing south that suggested that it was entirely possible that within a week's worth of fighting due to both combat losses and the effects of uh, unserviceability on that small force of 20 Sea Harriers that we might be down to just 10 left fighting uh, by the end of week one. And so Tim's effort to produce as quickly as possible a meaningful reinforcement and attrition um, replacements for that tiny force uh, that were facing this large, 10 times larger, very capable collection of Argentinian pilots and relatively modern fast jet fighters uh, was absolutely crucial. Yeah. How important overall were the Sea Harriers to the Falklands war effort? Without the Sea Harrier and the ability to provide some sort of defence of the amphibious operations area, for instance, and let alone air defence of the fleet, we would not have won. So I think it was uh, absolutely essential to winning the war. Now, that's not saying the Sea Harrier won the war, of course, because there were all sorts of other essential uh, elements of it. But um, it was part of the mix of capabilities that we had which which were essential to winning. And that mix of capabilities, there's a wonderful phrase, I don't know whose it is, but Roland, you pull it out. You say that the Harrier is capable of, you know, winning a knife fight in a phone box. <laughs> One does stumble across these incredible phrases, particularly when um start sort of looking at what the US Marine Corps um used to say about the Harrier. And they were very early supporters of the Harrier program, late sixties and early seventies. And the, the the Harrier, because of its unique capabilities, was one of um really just two foreign aeroplanes, British aeroplanes, that were ever 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 made such a compelling case um were bought by the American um, armed forces. One of them was the the Canberra bomber and reconnaissance plane. And the other was the Harrier, because the Marines felt that it was exactly what they needed to fight something like the war they fought in the Pacific at the end of the Second World War. And it was the US Marine Corps who first explored and appreciated the unique potential of the Harrier as a dogfighting machine, because it had these... um, in order to be able to take off and land vertically, um, rotating nozzles that could direct the power of the jet engine. And if you were to use these in forward flight, uh, viffing, vectoring in forward flight, you were able to change direction or decelerate at an extraordinary rate, which no normal fixed wing fast jet could possibly compete with. And so, you know, everything that the US Marine Corps and subsequently the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy, put the Harrier and Sea Harrier up against, often came away with um, egg on its face. And I know Tim can tell you about the the occasion when he, with 800 Squadron, first encountered what was the sort of, supposedly the epitome of the fourth generation of dogfighting machines, the F-16, um, American F-16. I think, was it Lucas or Lossiemouth up in, um, in Scotland? I, I, I think it's worth saying at, the, at this stage that I had the huge advantage over the Argentines that um, I had 
fought practice uh, exercises the Sea Harrier against virtually every aircraft in the Western world, actually with the exception of the Mirage Three and the um, uh, Super Eight Dart. But uh, we'd we'd fought against a full range of um, American aircraft on uh, much of that uh, practice fighting on instrumented ranges. So we had uh, a lot of our pilots had flown the F-4 Phantom operationally um, in previous um, appointments. So we had a, a, a lot of knowledge about what the other aircraft could do and particularly we knew what the Sea Harrier could not do, which is hugely important in any sort of air, air combat. The Sea Harrier was a very simple aircraft with just a heat-seeking, couple of heat-seeking missiles and a couple of guns. So it was limited in some ways, but uh, that was, uh, in a sense, one of its great strengths. And the, the other point I think it's, it's worth making is that had we not had the Sea Harrier in the sort of weather conditions that there were in the South Atlantic, then a lot of the time we would not have been able to fly. And the, the deck movements uh, were way, way, way out of limits, um, the normal limits for flying aircraft. Even the sort of biggest of the American carriers, Nimitz class, would have had problems down there in those sort of conditions. But we could operate the Sea Harrier almost with impunity. And if the deck was moving, you simply hovered over the deck and waited, waited for the deck to uh, stop moving and then, then land and then tie the aircraft down. And, and that's a very important point because we were reacting to Argentine attacks all the time. We were not attacking Argentina. So the, the Argentines could fly when the weather was suitable. We were flying whenever we were being attacked, and that was a very different thing. So I have said to a lot of people, without that ability, we would not have won the war. And those same people, particularly people in North America, have said to me many times that wouldn't you have loved to have had the old Ark Royal with Phantoms and Buccaneers or, you know, one of their carriers with uh, conventional aircraft. And um, my answer would have been yes in some ways, but uh, no, if we'd had that, only that, we would have lost. That experience in, in battle and... You know, when you went down to the Falklands, presumably you had an idea what your Harriers were going to have to do. Did what actually happened in the event correspond with that idea? I mean, was there, you know, as much dogfighting as you, you thought, or were there, were there other, other roles the, the um, planes were playing that, that you hadn't expected? When we set off, the intelligence advice the, that we had was uh, pretty abysmal, to be quite honest. We had no detailed knowledge of the capability of the Argentine Air Force or the Navy pilots. We knew roughly how many aircraft they had, but that was sort of published in Jane's uh, All the World's Aircraft. So that was very public knowledge. But really the detailed uh, knowledge which we would have expected to have had which we had, for instance, on, on all the Russian capabilities, we simply did not have against Argentina. So we were expecting uh, something like 10 aircraft 
Uh, I mean, they had about 200 combat aircraft and we had 20. So, you know, you've got a sort of, uh, uh, you know, t 10 to 1 uh, ratio against you. The expectation was that we were going to have a real problem. Now, in the event, as soon as the sort of first combat engagements were fought, we realised that actually the Argentines were not doing what we would have expected a well-trained uh, fighter pilot to do. And they lost, uh, and they lost aircraft. They were shot down. And at, at the end of the day, we shot down 23 of their aircraft to zero losses of our own. So as every day went by, I think we were greatly reassured that actually our capability was what we expected. And their capability, to be quite frank, was um, not up to the mark. I think they they thought they were better than they were and they hadn't had this benefit of training against uh, other aircraft types on instrumented ranges, which was, to me was absolutely invaluable. There's also extraordinary detail, I think, early on in the book where you talk about the Argentine Air Force and they they're going through their kind of fighter jets and they discover that the ejector seats don't work and that half of them have cracks in the wings and so forth. Well, that's right. That's actually the um, the naval air arm, the small Argentine naval air arm that operated off the carrier the 25th of May. And um, indeed, they found out that all the um, ejector seat cartridges uh, were well past their sell-by date. Um, they weren't able to replace them, so they just had to uh, uh, create a new arbitrary uh, used by date and similarly they found cracks in the wings which they again had to make a decision about um, whether or not they were going to um, ignore and take those jets into combat in any case and in fact it le did lead to the to the tragic death of one of the um, Argentine pilots who'd safely made his way back to base um, after an aborted bombing raid was still carrying all the bombs under the uh, under the wings but um, because of the weight of that and a burst tire veered off the runway tried to eject was unable to was dragged out of the cockpit by his parachute and the chair then landed heavily on top of him and, and killed him um, and that was an entirely avoidable death as a result of the um, age and poor condition of the ma uh, machine that he was forced to fly. And I bet they found that pretty depressing. Certainly I would have done. Well, there was the other Argentine pilot who, who was sort of hit by a Harrier quite early in the war, who then was returning. He tried to come down in Port Stanley, didn't he? And got shot down by his own anti-aircraft. Uh, he did. I mean, that's very, very early on in the war when um, I think that, there, you know, there was... Um, obviously uh, enormous nervousness amongst the gunners around um, Stanley and um, you know despite his best efforts to to ensure that he was identified there were gunners who were more concerned about making sure they shot down anything that was approaching I think that the trigger for that uh, was when he in order to give himself a better chance of landing on a very short runway at Stanley dropped his auxiliary fuel tanks from under the wings and they thought that they were they were be they were bombs and that they were being attacked and that was when they um, they opened fire um, but again you know a, a, a terrible accident now one of the you know enduringly sort of controversial moments of the war of course it was the sinking of the Belgrano which was nothing to do with the Harriers it was a submarine that sank the Belgrano but leaving aside the sort of 
you know, ethical rules of war questions that have dogged it. I was very interested to read the, the tactical effect of that, as you describe in the book. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the reasons for um, the attack on the Belgrano have been sort of well rehearsed. But um, one of the things that um, had spurred the attack was the thought that the British fleet was going to be caught in a pincer movement from the, from, between Belgrano coming in from the south and uh, an Argentine um, aircraft carrier-led um, group from the north. But the sinking of the Belgrano, as uh, indeed uh, was predicted by the first sea lord, Sir Henry Leach, had the effect of um, removing the Argentine fleet from the subsequent fight because um, it was demonstrable that they were extremely vulnerable to attack by submarine. And indeed, HMS Splendid, uh, for a while, had um, the Argentine carrier in her sights. And I think only badly timed fog from the point of view of uh, the captain of Splendid um, saved the carrier from being torpedoed. The the Argentine admirals just sailed really only within territorial waters after that. Uh, that was as a direct result of the sinking of the Belgrano. So at a stroke, that attack removed a vital part of the Argentine arsenal from the war that followed and really isolated the islands, uh, meaning that providing the the sea harriers that were also able to do their job defending the British fleet and defending the amphibious assault uh, against the islands, they were going to have to rely beyond that point on the defences and the resources that were on the islands themselves, because only the occasional transport plane coming into the islands could resupply them, and that wasn't going to be able to keep them going indefinitely. Yes, he also said it took the seahawks out of the I took, it, it took the Argentine sky, naval skyhawk pilots had been excited about the prospect of what they imagined was going to be something like a sort of mini battle of midway in the South Atlantic, i.e. a carrier on carrier battle. And uh, the removal of the carrier removed that prospect. But what it also did was ensure that there was a little bit, and Tim can reflect on this, I, I, I suspect, with... Um, far more insight. It meant that there was a greater degree of certainty or confidence about the direction from which the British ships might be attacked, because it was known from that point that they were only going to be able to attack from mainland bases, and they were always going to be to the west of the, the British carriers. The only, and this is was critical um, subsequently to the the fate of Atlantic conveyor, only the Argentines' ability to refuel their um, attack jets uh, in flight meant that actually uh, the possibility of being attacked from unexpected directions um, uh, remained. And that, that was uh, crucial in what happened to Atlantic conveyor and also in subsequent attacks against the British carriers. Tim, can you have a sense of what, because I know that the early sort of infrastructure attacking raids on the islands themselves, which sea harriers were involved in. There's an amazing description of them flying between 5 and 15 feet above the ground as they came in. That was just a bit before you showed up. What was what was 809's main role once you arrived? We were almost entirely on um, air defence of the um, amphibious operations area, uh, the San Carlos area, um, and so we were manning combat air patrol stations generally to the west of um, San Carlos. Uh, there were some attack missions, but they were fairly limited um, by the time I'd got down there. Although I, I remember, Tim, you telling me on one occasion, and um, 
you know, certainly there were ships still being sunk after the, the, the time that 809 joined the, the fight, because that was prior to the amphibious landings. Remember you telling me about an occasion when you and your wingman were being vectored onto an Argentine attack against the ships and and that the rule was that you couldn't enter the um, the missile engagement zone of the British ships for fear that you yourself would then become a target of those missiles and that you were sort of hot on in hot pursuit of the Argentine Skyhawks when, um, you know, much to your chagrin, you're hauled off and told that the ship's missiles were going to take them instead. Yeah, that, that was HMS Coventry. And um, we had uh, a couple of... Um, Skyhawks, uh, uh, four Skyhawks ahead of us, and I reckon that uh, had we not been hauled off, then we might have got uh, missiles amongst those attacking aircraft uh, before they actually released their bombs. But that would have gone totally against all the uh, normal rules that we operated to. So there was a sort of um, anything outside 15 miles from the ship at that stage was. Uh, we could attack aircraft between 10 and 15 miles was a uh, uh, sort of crossover zone and anything inside 10 miles would have been, um, uh, as we called it, take it with birds. The ship would have uh, taken out the attacking aircraft. So it, it was a classic case. It was, it was uh, absolutely in accordance with the rule book. We were hauled off and um, sadly, the uh, ship's uh, defence armament didn't uh, take out the attacking aircraft. Tim, what's your most enduring memory of your experience in theatre? Gosh, that's that's an interesting question. In a sense, one of relief that um, uh, everything worked as uh, we expected it to work. Serviceability of the aircraft was uh, virtually 100%. I mean, what I'm saying is that every time we planned to fly a mission, the aircraft was there, ready and waiting, and it worked as advertised. So I think my overriding, uh, looking back on it, was that um, we were very lucky in a sense that we had had the practice um, and from my own point of view, for the two years prior to the conflict, we knew what we were doing, we knew the aircraft, uh, we knew what we could not do with the aircraft, which is almost as important as knowing what you can do. And my other thought is that the enemy, the Argentine Air Force and Navy, were not actually operating really fully to the way that I would have expected. And I think... um, in, in that respect, we were we were lucky that they had not had the practice and the training that um, they might have had. Now, they didn't shoot down, as you say, any of the British Sea Harriers, but we did lose lose men and planes in the course of the conflict, didn't we? Yes, we, we lost um, uh, a couple to um, one on an attack on Goose Green, was shot down by um, the ground-based anti-aircraft fire and... um, This is Nick Taylor. Nick Taylor and also one was shot down by a Roland missile over Stanley. But uh, the other losses were really due to the the weather. So they were accidents. I think, uh, you know... Go back to to what I was saying earlier was that the the weather conditions at times were simply appalling, and in normal 
course of uh, aircraft operations at sea, you would not dream of flying, but um, we had to fly. So uh, the uh, aircraft was um, capable of it. It, uh, I think in a, in a way, perhaps we were lucky we didn't lose more aircraft to accidents, but uh, that was a fact. The, the weather at times was not good. Nick Taylor, who was this person you mentioned who was shot down when approaching Goose Green, there's a detail in the book which I, I, I don't know enough about military technology to have completely deciphered, but you said that he didn't know he was going to be fired on by these anti-aircraft guns because they'd reconfigured the Harrier in some way, they'd removed something called the RWR. Was that a mistake? Uh, my understanding of that particular shooting down was that it was um, uh, not the radar-aimed gun, but it was the it was visually laid. So he was the number three in the uh, three attacking aircraft. My understanding was that it was the uh, the chap manning the gun who actually visually uh, sighted the the aircraft coming in and visually aimed the gun at it. So whether, uh, had he had a radar warning receiver, then I suppose that might have um, alerted him. But um, actually, when you're attacking something, you don't jink around. You uh, keep going in a straight line because you want the, the weapon to go where you're aiming it. I'm not sure that the lack of an RWR really uh, would have... Um, would have made that much difference, to be quite honest. And the other point on the uh, radar warning was that um, there was a lot of sort of spurious um, noises that came out of it. So sometimes the uh, the spurious noises were so uh, off-putting that I remember turning the whole system off in, in the aircraft from time to time. It drowned out everything else. I mean, that was a personal thing, but it was um, it was um, early days for the RWR. It, 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 later generations are vastly better. There was another interesting aspect to to that story, though, and one which um, may have had some sort of unintended or unexpected consequences. Have further persuaded the Argentine uh, Navy to stay in shore in that the jet that Dick Taylor was flying had been a jet used for trials um, at Dunsfold, which was where um, the Harriers were made. It was being used for trialling a new Exocet-type anti-ship missile called the Sea Eagle. And it had, as Tim says, had had the uh, RWR, the radar warning receiver, uh, removed so that the trials kit for that Sea Eagle missile could be installed in its place. And so when the Argentines went through the wreckage of uh, Nick Taylor's jet, they found all the instrumentation for the the Sea Eagle missiles and might well have come to the conclusion as a result that the British Sea Harriers were using um, those missiles and had a capability available to them that that, um, they actually in real life did not have. But that psychological concern or that concern about a perceived capability was really really critical because the Argentines after the very first interception of uh, one of their aircraft by a Royal Navy pilot called Simon Hargreaves as the fleet was sailing south knew that the British had a an advanced version of the Sidewinder missile called the AIM-9L the 9 Lima and this was much more capable than previous generation. In fact, the, the designers who came up with it labelled it the, the death ray. It was so unerring in its ability to hit its target from, from any 
angle. The Argentine pilots knew that the British had this nine Lima missile and were very wary of it as a consequence and perhaps uh, reluctant to tangle with the sea harriers and instead just simply turn round and abandon a prospective raid because of the thought that they might be shot down if they were intercepted by the sea harriers. So um, psychological deterrent effect of uh, sort of a perceived capability can be really critical and have a dramatic um, effect on 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 an out on the outcome of a battle and a, a deterrent turning away a raid without having shot it down is exact has exactly the same effect on uh, on the the safety of the ships that had been the target as uh, as shooting down that aircraft finally roland you say early on that that some of the stuff you came on was still was sort of still classified this was what I'd originally intended to write quite a focused and relatively short account of 809's war without bringing in many of the sort of wider aspects to it. But as soon as I got into the archives and realised uh, that they hadn't really been explored um, since they'd been declassified, uh, I realised there was a much broader tapestry to be woven and um, the whole thing started to turn into... Uh, something more like a, a sort of Tom Clancy novel. And uh, 809's story became part of a wider attempt to tell the story of the critical effort to keep those carriers safe from attack. And those those efforts were taking place at sea, 809's effort alongside the other Harrier Squadrons, 800, 801, back at home where establishments like the Royal Radar Establishment, Department of Naval Air Warfare, the Royal Air Force, Farnborough, Boscombe Down, etc., etc., all scrambling to come up with new capabilities, not least that develop a, an, uh, an airborne early warning system, which they even considered putting inside an airship. But also the war that was going on on the South American mainland to try to provide early warning of attack against the fleet. So, you know, I came across... Um, an attempt to use uh, or, or an operation called Operation Folklore to deploy Canberra PR9 spy planes to Chile and land them on the Pan American Highway before sending them down to Punta Arenas for to flying a Nimrod spy plane off a sort of remote Pacific island called San Felix, which almost on two occasions ended in disaster. And also um, the deployment of a small signals outfit to Santiago to relay radar imagery or radar information uh, gleaned from the south the, the argentinian bases by satellite uh, link from santiago in the headquarters of the chilean air force intelligence operation back to northward where where the war was being run from and to the fleet as well so i think that was operation shutter and those reports were reaching the carrier too so the whole thing became this sort of so say like a kind of Tom Clancy thriller as I was trying to weave together all these different elements to, in the service of this um, uh, effort to keep the carriers safe. I was going to say there was a remarkable safe. detail in the Chilean aspect of the story whereby they, they, you know, your sort of diplomat come naval attaché come spy kind of character who's down there says to the Chilean senior officer, says, look, we, we'd really like to fly these Canberras out. And he said, oh, we can't possibly do that. It's too recognisable an aircraft you know, they'll know you're, you're doing this. So you simply have to sell us a couple <laughs> in training. Yeah, that's right. And perhaps perhaps once you've sold them to us, you could send maybe a couple of instructors down to help us sort of bring them into service. And, you know, were some of those training flights to possibly uh, take pictures of the Argentinian ships and the disposition of their forces? Well, you know, that would be a, an acceptable um, side effect, perhaps. But, you know, the, the Chileans were, um, you know, incredibly supportive and helpful of, of uh, the British efforts. And, 
And uh, but you know, perhaps up until the time that the um, the Daily Star reported that there was a squadron of phantoms um, in uh, Tierra del Fuego ready to shoot the Argentinian air force out of the sky, which was entirely false. But they did kind of get um, cold feet about the amount of publicity that seemed to be attracting British sort of um, under the radar efforts were starting to attract, and that that I think uh, was eventually and fatally compounded when a burnt-out seeking helicopter was found um, in Chile that had been used as a vehicle for an SAS reconnaissance of the Argentinian um, airfields. At, at that point, they said, OK, enough is enough. We're going to get ourselves... Because essentially, they were a, they were a neutral country and uh, they shouldn't have been um, providing any help whatsoever. And once, it, once they'd passed the point of plausible deniability, uh, they, they sort of pulled up the drawbridge. Do you think Mrs Thatcher's enduring enthusiasm for Pinochet comes down in part to owing him one for that? Yeah, I'm, I'm certain that it does, yes. And I, I think, uh, if, if I could just add, that I do think that uh, one of the um, uh, major features of the, uh, your book, Roland, is the fact that you have... Um, it's the first time that um, all the different threads of what was going on um, have been brought together. I mean, there, there have been books about how the Sea Harrier won the war, for instance, um, and uh, special forces have uh, produced books um, about how the special forces won the war. Uh, there have been other books about um, surface ships and so on, how they won the war. But actually, it was this combination of all the capabilities that won. It was not one single um, element of it. And I think uh, Harrier 809 actually does bring this all together in, a, in, a, in quite a vivid way. I think the, um, the, the book is going to be very well received by all sorts of people. Oh, that's very very kind of you, Tim. I mean, I think that was the thing that struck me as I got um, further and further into the book was kind of the depth and breadth of uh, w- w- the way that, that Britain fought the war. Um, you know, there, there were the sort of headline stories as the war unfolded, and, and they have tended to remain foremost in people's minds, but there was so much going on beneath the surface, and I mean that sort of um, metaphorically. There was so much going on that, that was... Uh, unknown to people and yet fascinating and dramatic and exciting and urgent in its own own right and and all of those different elements whether they were industry in british aerospace whether it was um uh, the, the 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 planners at northwood or the efforts of department of naval air warfare to um generate great great capability for the sea harrier indeed the royal air force's extraordinary efforts in almost providing a a, a pipeline of new Harriers that were, were could be delivered to the carriers kind of as required w- were incredible. And the, the logistics operation of, um, of the Falklands War is just um, staggering. Um, and um, very few countries could conceivably have uh, mounted an operation like that. Um, in fact, I suspect that um, 1982, it was probably just two. And that was um, Britain and the, the United States. Last question, I'm afraid we're running out of time, but Tim, I just wanted to ask, when you saw the Sea Harriers go out of service, did you sort of, as it were, shed a tear? Do you feel a sentimental attachment to the plane or is it just a piece of machinery? Many tears. (laughs) I think uh, what a a crass decision it was. 2010, well, we lost the Sea Harrier in in, in 06, but... um, 
to take away the the Harrier capability when we did was uh, quite astonishing. It was such a cost-effective and capable aircraft. And from the Royal Navy's point of view, it's it's, it's taking over 10 years to get back into the uh, uh, idea of uh, uh, capability of operating a, a carrier. And now we're seeing with the, the, the new two, two new carriers, of course, we've got this uh, fantastic capability with the um, F-35 uh, carriers that can actually take pretty well any airplane you uh, helicopter or capability you want to put on board so um, uh, but yes when this when the harrier went i was uh, particularly upset well anybody who loves harriers can revisit their glory days in this great book Roland white and tim gedge i'm very grateful for your time thank you You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.